If we look at the amount of misinformation and disinformation about the coronavirus, if we look at how difficult it is becoming for people to actually determine what credible information is to make decisions about their life and their health, we're, we're in a really bad moment right now. And it didn't take advanced technology or deep fakes or synthetic media or some of the things that people had sort of become obsessed with with the last couple of years. We have just this massive global event with tons of fear and uncertainty built in where expertise is needed around epidemiology and other things that the average person doesn't have. And it's just been completely weaponized and people are having a really hard time knowing what the best advice is, what they should be doing, whether or not, you know, the virus is a hoax, whether or not the death counts are, in, are inflated. I think we're in a we're in a moment right now that people have been worried about for some time. And it's not necessarily about politics. It's about health. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 14th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck spoke with Craig Silverman, the media editor for BuzzFeed News and one of the leading journalists on the disinformation beat. Craig is credited with coining the phrase fake news. Evelyn spoke to him about how he feels about that, especially now that the term has taken on a life of its own. They also talked about a book Craig edited, the second edition of the Verification Handbook, available free online now, that equips journalists with the tools they need to verify what they see online. Journalism and reporting on disinformation has never been so important, but the internet has never been so chaotic. And journalists are not only observers of disinformation, but also targets of it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 14th. Craig Silverman on real reporting on fake news. Craig Silverman, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you're the media editor for BuzzFeed News, and I watched a panel last week where you were called the grandfather of the study of disinformation, and it was quickly corrected to godfather, um, so as to not imply false information about your age. Um, But I was wondering if you could just give our listeners a bit of an overview about your background and how you earned that title. Yes, well, I mean, somebody else gave me that title, so I would never put that on a business card myself. Uh, I think there's wonderful people in the field uh, who've been doing it for a while. But I mean, for me, to give a, a kind of a quick summary, it's it starts in 2004, where I start just blogging about media and primarily about the mistakes that journalists make. So corrections, accuracy, and fact-checking and verification. And I wrote that blog for, for about Uh, a decade or so. Uh, And I ended up doing a book about sort of the history of media accuracy. And so was very interested in how journalists verify information, avoid making mistakes. And then, of course, as the digital environment changed so much, and we get to like 2010, suddenly it's not just about, well, what kind of verification are you doing in a newsroom? But how are you verifying all of this amazing abundance of information that's spreading on Twitter, that's spreading on Facebook that is out there and public before a newsroom gets a chance to sit and check it and verify it. And uh, and so that sort of started me on uh, a shift in a journey, um, and in particular, starting to focus on how people manipulate our media environment, um, you know, with falsehoods, with uh, misleading or altered images. And uh, I edited a book for the a European Journalism Center called the Verification Handbook, which was sort of a one of the first guides around doing this kind of work. And that came out in about, uh, I think it was around 2010, and have just continued in the space. And, you know, I did uh, a research fellowship at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia, where I actually looked at 
online rumors, how we debunk them, why they spread, and in particular, why news organizations are often sometimes the ones who are sort of propagating unverified and at times questionable claims. And um, and so for me, I mean, I, I've sort of made a career of this for a while and at BuzzFeed News, this is my specialty and the specialty of a reporter who I work closely with, Jane Litvinenko, and have been reporting on it at BuzzFeed since about 2016. So that's, I guess, considered you know, old and early um, compared to what we've seen over the last few years, which is a, an amazing blossoming of the space and lots of people now working on it. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, kind of impossible to keep up with sort of all of the news about fake news every day at the moment. And uh, the verification handbook is actually um, exactly why we wanted to talk to you today, because you've just launched uh, another uh, edition of that. But before we get to that, you've been credited with coining the term fake news um, and definitely bringing it mainstream. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, so it's it started, I guess, in about 2014 when I was doing that research fellowship, and and at that time I was really obsessed with debunking and with the spread of of viral online rumors and trying to think about you know how do we how do we do a better job of debunking viral falsehoods, and also um, the kind of economy, the rumor economy around spreading false information or misleading information because of course you can get lots of attention for a shocking claim. And so I was doing this research project. We were looking at kind of unverified claims and how news websites were spreading them. And that's when I came across a cluster of sites that looked like news websites that published articles written in the news style, but everything was 100% false, 100% fake. Um, so like the, the most prominent one at the time was nationalreport.net, which looked like a right-leaning American news website, but every story was completely fake. And so for me, they really caught my attention when there was the Ebola scare in the fall of 2014, because they were publishing just insane articles, things claiming like a small town in Texas had been quarantined, um, you know, somebody died of Ebola on a plane, just really crazy fear-mongering false stories. And so I just started describing them as fake news. Um, these were fake news websites, because everything they did was fake, and they were meant to look like a news website. And that ended up being, you know, a chapter in the the research I published in early 2015. And basically, ever since then, I've used this term fake news to describe information that's 100% false, created to deceive, and for an economic motive. So for me, a little bit different than sort of traditional kind of propaganda, in that people are trying to make money from this. And that economically driven false economy of information has been a big focus for me. And I just, you know, kept using that term and used it all through 2016 through coverage about, you know, teenagers in Macedonia writing and publishing false stories that were often, you know, pro-Trump and going uh, insanely viral for it and had used it um, to describe two Canadian teenagers who were writing completely false stories about Justin Trudeau and earning, you know, thousands of dollars a month in ad revenue. And so it had just become a term that I had used and hadn't thought a lot about. And then, of course, we get to January of 2017, and Donald Trump uses it to refer to CNN, and suddenly the universe shifts. Right, yeah, and that's just such an interesting point, because you just talked then about how you have quite a specific 
definition for it. And then since then, it's kind of taken on a life of its own and it means, you know, all things to all people. Um, and there's kind of been this backlash against the term fake news, given the way that it's been co-opted by a lot of political actors, not just in the US, but around the world as well, to describe uh, media coverage that they simply don't like. So how do you sort of feel about the backlash as the sort of a, a progenitor of the, t- the term in, in modern times? And what's your view of, of whether we should keep using it at all? Oh, gosh. I mean, the whole thing is so strange and painful at this point, to be honest. Sorry to bring it up, Ben. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, well, I've been living this pain for years now, so I'm used to it. It's like a, a hum in the background of my life. And I mean, when I was using it, I never really thought of it more than just it seemed like the best term to describe something. And and then in the towards the end of 2016, I had to really think about, you know, the definition of where I was using it. And it's true that at this point, I think if you lined a bunch of people up and asked them what fake news is, you get a bunch of different answers. And I think the fact that the term has been taken, as you said, not just by Trump, but by world leaders um, in many different countries and other people to sort of label anything they don't like, to label critical journalism, to label, you know, the opposition and other things. That's, you know, the part that's really painful to me because it was meant to describe something that, you know, was relatively clearly defined and problematic in our media ecosystem. And now it's being used as a cudgel to beat legitimate journalists and and journalism. So I do think we're at a point where it's it's such a strange thing because it's a ubiquitous term that everybody's kind of heard, but it's also meaningless because of the way it's been weaponized. And so I now try to avoid it for the most part, except in very specific situations. And I do think that, you know, some of the work that Claire Wardle, for example, has done at first draft to talk about misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, to, to be a little more specific in the terms we use is, is a really um, helpful and good direction because, you know, we're in a situation where there's so much awareness around this topic now that, of course, you know, there's a lot of really misguided and misleading information and claims about it. And so if we can be more specific and have, have better terms to try and zero in a bit more, I think that's probably a really productive thing. So there were several or a couple of stories that you wrote in the aftermath of the 2016 election, um, which were really sort of pivotal and iconic in that moment. You know, there was the Macedonian teenagers story um, spreading fake news for commercial gain. But there was also another iconic story where you showed how viral fake news had outperformed real news on Facebook um, and highlighting the now infamous um, Pope endorses Donald Trump story that had gone viral. Looking back on it for me, there was really sort of this sense during that period based on sort of that really important reporting that we were sort of entering this post-truth era um, where the internet was just, you know, done for as a source of reliable information. And I just wonder your impression on, you know, how you feel about whether the predictions and the feeling in that time, whether you had a similar sort of feeling during that time and, and, and how you feel in the four years since the story, whether it's played out how you would have expected or um, is it better or worse than you would have expected? Looking back, the the funny thing for me in 2016 was having been immersed in this stuff for a while. At at first, I was I was you know continuously surprised by the amount of attention and engagement and whatnot that these stories were getting. I mean, it was they would we would publish them and they would just kind of explode, and I hadn't really experienced that before. And so for me, it was like, yeah, this is what's going on, you guys. <laughs> you know, this is what the deal has been for a few years, and suddenly, you know, there was kind of uh, people waking up to it, but also 
it was a case where there was so much attention being focused on, you know, what I was doing, what other people were doing, that there were just, there were really over the top claims being made about, for example, you know, what that, that analysis I did of kind of viral fake news versus viral real news about the election. There were people who were claiming that that showed that Donald Trump, you know, was an illegitimately elected president because obviously it was fake news and people were tricked and this was manipulation. And, you know, that wasn't the case. And so I ended up at the time having to try and sort of calm people down a little bit. But what was also a great thing is there was an awakening and there was an awakening within places like Facebook. There was an awakening within the research community, the national security community, and so many other places. And that just continued as we learned more about kind of Russian interference and other things. And, and that's been really great and important because for a while, I personally, particularly in 2014, felt like I was just kind of screaming into the void. I had a call with someone at Facebook in 2014 to talk about these, you know, fake news websites and how viral they were going and what a problem this was and how the incentives were really messed up. And, you know, they they sort of asked me, well, you know, we see you're doing this rumor tracking. You have technology that automatically identifies. And I'm like, well, no, like we're journalists and we're identifying things and we're verifying them. This is this is what we're doing. It's manual work. And they were sort of palpably disappointed because, you know, they wanted something that would scale and something that was automatic. And that went nowhere, obviously, for a few years. And now all of a sudden, you know, Facebook is paying money for dozens and dozens and dozens of fact checkers all around the world. And so we have had just a tremendous change. And I do think this moment right now that we're in is, to a certain extent, is kind of that awful future we were all worried about. If we look at the amount of misinformation and disinformation about the coronavirus, if we look at how difficult it is becoming for people to actually determine what credible information is to make decisions about their life and their health, we're, we're in a really bad moment right now. And it didn't take advanced technology or deep fakes or synthetic media or some of the things that people had sort of become obsessed with with the last couple of years. We have just this massive global event with tons of fear and uncertainty built in where expertise is needed around epidemiology and other things that the average person doesn't have. And it's just been completely weaponized and people are having a really hard time knowing what the best advice is, what they should be doing, whether or not, you know, the virus is a hoax, whether or not the death counts are, in, are inflated. I think we're in a we're in a moment right now that people have been worried about for some time. And it's not necessarily about politics. It's about health. So that's a perfect segue to talking about the book that you just published, which sort of seems to come at a perfect moment. So thank you very much uh, for your public service. Uh, It's titled Verification Handbook, which is the reason why we wanted to talk to you today. Um, Verification Handbook for Disinformation and Media Manipulation um, is intended to be a resource for journalists on how to deal with you know, precisely this kind of issue of, of trying to work out what content you can trust and, and what you can't. Can you tell us a bit about the book and, and what the problem is that it's targeted at solving? Yeah. So as uh, as we talked about, there was an, an original edition of the book. And I think I said 2010, but it was actually early 2014 now that I, I remember it a bit better. And that one was sort of a, a general guide to verification of, hey, you've got videos, you've got photos, you've got a tweet. How do you verify this? Um, with a bit of a focus on kind of breaking news and emergency situations. And just, of course, as, as living through these last few years and doing you know, so much reporting on disinformation and seeing that it's become a discipline for so many newsrooms 
And for so many researchers and people in different areas, it really seemed like this was a moment where we needed to bring out a new edition and we had a clear focus of around, you know, disinformation and media manipulation, which is sort of, you know, the broader ways that our digital environment is manipulated. And so it did seem like the perfect moment to do it. And we started about a year ago uh, with the European Journalism Center. And basically the mandate was go out and find kind of my dream team of journalists and researchers who do the kind of hands-on work of verifying, um, exposing disinformation networks, uh, revealing who's behind, you know, malicious social media campaigns and accounts, and figure out how we can deliver something that is really accessible, not overly technical. You don't need to be, you know, a programmer, what have you, to do the work. And also hopefully gives kind of a baseline of approaches that people can follow. And one of the driving concerns for me over the last few years is that of course, we have a flowering of people doing this kind of reporting and work in journalism, but you know, not everybody necessarily has uh, a lot of grounding in it. And the reality is the more people trying to talk about and do something, you're going to have various level degrees of success and quality. And so the hope is that this becomes a baseline resource that journalists and other people who want to investigate this kind of stuff can use so that, for example, we don't end up people going out and pointing the finger at random Twitter accounts and saying, oh, see, that's a Russian bot, which I think has just been an absolute horrible thing that is pervasive since uh, 2017 or so, where people are calling things bots that aren't seeing Russians behind every digital corner and shadow. And we have to be better than that. So hopefully the book is going to help with that. Yeah, absolutely. Sadly, often when people are jerks to you online, they're just jerks uh, and not bots or, or Russians. Right. So what, when you're reporting on this, what are the main threat vectors that you're sort of concerned about that this book addresses? Like, what's the thing that's that you most worry about in your reporting that you don't want to be, uh, you know, a victim of this kind of disinformation or manipulation? Yeah, I, I think the, the fundamental thing that we're first trying to get across to anyone who's going to look at this book or read it, and I think it's something that's not just for journalists and investigators, but is something we all have to come to terms with, is that this digital environment, which has brought you know many great benefits, um, has opened up so many things and made so many elements of media more participatory, is also the most easy to influence and manipulate media environment ever because of how democratic and, and open it is overall. And so that is the first fundamental thing, is that people have to understand that engaging with and, you know, and consuming information in this environment requires you to have a different level of skepticism and a different level of engagement with the kinds of things that you're seeing out there than the sort of passive consumption that a lot of people in Western democratic societies have had in terms of media, where you felt reasonably certain about, you know, the information you might be getting from a newspaper or TV report wasn't perfect. You know, you knew there, there could be, you know, bias and there were limitations of it. But overall, there was a kind of professional process um, taking place to put it out there. And that's, of course, not the case with what we're seeing in the digital environment. There's so many different types of, of content, so many different actors, so many different motivations. And it is so easy to fake the signals of credibility and authority in this environment. So that's kind of the fundamental baseline thing everybody needs to understand. And for journalists, if you're actually going out there, forget whether you're a disinformation reporter. If you're trying to gather information and it's you know coming from websites you find, from experts you collect online, whether you're citing social media posts, if you don't understand that and then have the basic skills to make sure you're not getting duped, that you're not 
unintentionally falling for kind of a manipulation campaign targeting newsrooms and journalists, you are going to mess up and you are going to end up eroding the quality of the information environment. And so as much as it's a book that is focused on on sort of niche topics, the fact is that media manipulation in the digital environment affects every aspect of information that we're consuming and seeing. And if you're a journalist, it affects every beat. So, you know, that's for me, the kind of overarching concern. It's not just about like a state-based actor trying to spread propaganda through social media. There's a fundamental ability here for lots of different actors with different motivations to come on this attack surface and potentially reach a lot of people. Yeah, that's something that the sort of pandemic and the current situation has really underlined um, is the sort of information glut that we're currently living through. You know, like in some ways, um, social media right now seems like indispensable and also it seems unusable. You know, it's this uh, it's it's been critical in getting people information, um, but it's also obviously been rife with harmful misinformation, both purposeful and both just as a result of the fact that people are simply like overwhelmed and confused and trying to work out what's going on. And I feel like I, I suppose it must as a journalist feel similar, like never has there been so much source material. Um, but on the other hand, so much of it is so hard to verify and, and potentially not true. And I guess, you know, especially now when ordinary tools of journalism are, are sort of not available to you, do you have a sense or a view? Is it, is it harder or easier to be a, a journalist in this environment or is it just uh, different? Uh I mean, I sort of, I think different would be the easy answer for me to give, but I, I do think the truth is that it, it is easier to be a journalist. If you think about things like finding sources now, I mean, this is, this is so much easier <laughs> than it was 20 years ago, uh, where, where you would, could spend hours calling around on the phone and, and, you know, come up completely empty and not be able to actually, you know, choose from a wide variety of sources at any given moment. Um, we have, of course, instantaneous information coming from so many parts of the globe, not everywhere, but but many of them. And of course, the trade-off for that is, is that there's a lot of garbage uh, out there. There's a lot of people trying to manipulate um, and influence journalists with this information glut. And so overall, I mean, I do think it's it's made our jobs easier. But the danger there is that you kind of get comfortable and you and you become you know, less, less skeptical and diligent about how easily the information comes to you. So you don't perhaps check it as much. And I continue to be surprised and really worried that when I go and do workshops and newsrooms or other things like that, that there's still what I consider to be really fundamental basic skills around verification and vetting things in the digital environment that's not being taught and that is not widespread in newsrooms. Like we still have a lot of work to do around even basic things like making sure literally every journalist on the planet understands how to use reverse image search. Like what a basic thing to say, but the truth is that it's not widespread. And my worry actually that when we publish handbooks like this, I mean, we have to declare what our focus is around it, but I worry that so many journalists might look at it and say like, well, I don't report on disinformation, so I don't really need to read this. But I consider the stuff that's in there to be really fundamental and I worry that journalists think that sort of digital investigative skills, verification skills are niche skills for people who do a certain type of reporting. And that's not the case. And as you say, if we look at what's going on with the coronavirus, if anybody was a science reporter or a health reporter and they didn't think that these skills were essential, well, they've certainly woken up to that now because of what is happening to our information environment when this became the dominant story. Without asking you to 
dob anyone in or sort of name any names and it doesn't have to be from the current environment but do you have any examples of what this looks like when it goes wrong like where reporting was either manipulated or you know it was wrong due to a failure to verify what's the sort of fail scenario that we're really concerned about yeah um so i think there's there's two broad ones that i'll say so the first one To give a concrete example, a few years ago, there was a sort of dashboard that was released, um, which was described as sort of showing what Russian-linked Twitter accounts were talking about. And uh, and this was done by people who had been studying, um, you know, kind of Russian online troll operations, people who were good people who were doing good work. But what happened was once this dashboard um, went live and once all of the, you know, uh, Internet research agency stuff became known, suddenly a lot of journalists would just go to this online dashboard and say, oh, this is one of the trending hashtags that these Russian links accounts are talking about. So we'll write a story saying Russian trolls are doing X now. And there was just uh, an insane amount of stories like that where the journalists did nothing other than go to this online dashboard and see, you know, what was linked from these accounts and what they were talking about and write a story saying, now we know what the Russian trolls are up to. And of course, you know, the nobody knows which accounts were included in that data set. So you need to be skeptical of that. And they weren't necessarily saying these were Russian state controlled troll accounts, they're saying these were people who tend to be amplifying a Russian favorable or pro-Russian line. And so I think journalists for a period of months and months and months continually got that wrong, did really sloppy and bad reporting, and were just pointing the finger where it didn't belong, saying Russian troll, Russian bot, and often you know mixing up those two terms, troll and bot. Uh, so that's one example. And the other one that is, I think, one of the biggest challenges in the space right now, and it's tough because it's really about a judgment call at the end of the day, is the idea of kind of uh, amplification. So if you see something that is false or you see a campaign to sort of push a you know misleading narrative and you see it early on, the question is, you know, when is that tipping point of when you should actually go out and debunk it or cover it? And what we know now is that uh, a lot of fringe online communities like, you know, the Chans, uh, 4chan, 8chan, uh, they see journalists as primary targets. They want to create memes and, you know, create kind of outrageous content that causes journalists to write about them. And for them, even when a journalist debunks something that they put out there, they consider it a win because the idea itself still got circulated. Um, so the, one of the big challenges is deciding whether something has reached a tipping point, enough people have seen it, interacted with it, what have you, amplified it, that you now need to sort of step in and say, okay, you've probably seen this thing and here's the deal about it. And so I think that's a place where journalists are still trying to figure out the right balance. And this is where also, frankly, Facebook comes in because they are, they are funding all of these fact checkers around the world, which overall is, is a good thing, but they have incentivized them on sort of speed and output. Meaning the more fact checks you publish, the more you can potentially be paid by Facebook. And the concern I have with that is that, you know, someone is then incentivized to potentially go out and debunk things that might actually be seen by very few people. And in the act of debunking it, maybe you're actually spreading that false claim further. Uh, And so that is, you know, one concrete thing in the environment where I think the fact checkers being funded by Facebook are trying to be aware of that and make sure that they don't lower their standard of what they need to debunk because there is a financial incentive there now. 
That's super fascinating because often the criticism that you get from fact-checking a lot of the time that we've talked about on this series as well is that they're not funded enough and they're not fact-checking enough um, and that there's so many claims going unfact-checked and unverified. So it's just fascinating to hear that. Also, the other side of the incentive problem as well uh, and how that plays out. But you, you sort of touched on another thing that we've been exploring and I'd love to get you to talk a little bit more about is that tension as a journalist between exposing something that's going on and raising awareness about these sort of campaigns, but also the risk of amplification and giving the underlying falsehood more oxygen and sort of the role of different actors in that space, you know, how a platform might think about that differently to the New York Times, who might think of it differently to even BuzzFeed or maybe a local newspaper. Um, what do you personally think about and, and how do you decide when is the moment to cover something? I, I do think that it's going to differ from one outlet to another, for sure. And that's, you know, that's a good thing in that newsrooms, you know, should think about that in their context. The bad thing, of course, is that it's easier if you're just able to say, hey, just do these three things and then you're going to know. Uh, so it is a, it is that judgment call area. For me, I do think about one of the criteria is, okay, is our audience at BuzzFeed News perhaps likely to have seen this? You know, there there is a thought about your own audience and who you reach and, and what the role of your organization is that should be factored into it. And so when we look at a piece of content and we see that it's false, then we're going to think about, you know, what level of engagement has it received, you know, on Facebook or across other platforms? Is it something that our audience might have interacted with? Or is it something that is on a trajectory in terms of, you know, the amount of engagement it's getting that we suspect it's probably going to touch them at some point and maybe we can get out in front of it? And another factor that uh, we often think about is the amplifiers themselves. So you might have something that, say, a video on YouTube, and perhaps it's only gotten you know twenty thousand views, which it doesn't seem like a lot, but maybe all of a sudden some very important people have started spreading it. Maybe they're tweeting it. Maybe they're putting it on Facebook. Maybe they've cited it in a press release. And so you might have something that has actually a relatively low amount of engagement and exposure, but has suddenly been amplified by people in positions of authority. And then then you sort of have to think about, well, now that they've put their seal on it, we we probably need to engage with it. And so those are some of the, the sort of factors that I tend to think about. And what, what's really core is having a conversation. Uh, a lot of times Jane and I will just talk about it and sort of go back and forth and see how we feel about it. And then, you know, maybe we come to a decision and then we're going to go to another editor and we're going to ask them, what do they think about it? And, and now, of course, the nice thing is you can also, if you want, go to organizations like First Draft, who are there to support journalists, and, and sort of ask them what they're thinking and what they're seeing. And so you can have some of these criteria, but then if you don't have the conversation, if you don't actually think about it and, and take that moment to talk it through, I think you can still make a bad decision. And so that's, that's kind of the way that we go about it. And the role of particular amplifiers and, and figures of authority is obviously the topic of hot debate a lot in this area and whether journalists should sort of cover false claims by people in positions of authority or um, and, and try and hold them to account and, and sort of expose disinformation or just not give it attention. Um, is the calculus different for you when it's a, a person in a position of power or is it sort of just similar? I think it I think it can be uh, a little bit different if they're kind of a persistent actor 
and I mean, I, I, I'm so tired of talking about Trump to a certain extent, but like, I think he's an example of that, or maybe Duterte in the Philippines, where they are just a, such a constant stream of things that are false, things that are misleading, that, you know, it becomes kind of part of their strategy. And, and it's amazing to think that, you know, it's been several years since both of them were elected and media still struggle with this decision of, okay, you know, uh, you know, Trump is on another, you know, tweeting frenzy with tons of uh, misleading things. Do we write a story debunking all of them? And I, I do think that you have to factor in at a certain point that it's really part of the strategy. You know, the fire hose of falsehood becomes part of the strategy of short circuiting the media ecosystem. We're used to doing discrete fact checks about politicians who, for the most part, you know, would like to overall be saying things that aren't getting false ratings from fact checkers. But people like Duterte, people like Trump, people like Bolsonaro have sort of realized, well, if we never apologize, if we never correct, if we are, are never cowed by fact checking and people saying things are false, eventually we can just steam steamroll through the whole system. And so, you know, I do think that for this for the sake of a presidency like one of these gentlemen, you do want to have the record of what they were saying and where that stands. But I think you also as a news organization have to realize that if all you're doing, if you're dedicating a significant amount of your resources to just chasing down their falsehoods and you just write up every tweet that they send, you've suddenly been captured by them. You've suddenly become uh, an organization that is beholden to what they are saying and doing at any moment. And that's what any politician ultimately wants. And so I think when, when you get to a point where it seems to be that politician's strategy to do this, you have to then take a different kind of calculus and a different kind of view of it and figure out you know, how you are not being played by what they're doing. So let's go back to fact-checking. I'd love to get a bit more of your views on that. It's one of the big solutions that platforms in particular have pinned a lot of hope on in this environment as the disinformation wars keep escalating, um, partnering with professional fact checkers to check stories. And then instead of taking down those false stories, they add tags and context to them. Um, and then in particular circumstances, we'll also notify people uh, who have seen those false stories. And there's a lot of complaints about this that we talked about a bit already. And you've talked about the incentive problems. And I talked about stuff that comes up often, which is that there's not sufficient resources um, and they're spread far too thin um, and are often too slow to catch stories before they go viral. But at the same time, it kind of seems like the best solution and the one that, that most platforms are turning to. Um, what do you think about fact-checking as sort of the, the big hope in, in the platform disinformation space? I mean, I think the first piece of it is is that we have to be realistic about what our expectations can be for what it can do. And it, you know, as you kind of described it, it's it's like, well, is it is it the most perfect of all of the least appealing, least you know, imperfect options? Um, and there's an element of that. And there's frankly, there's an element of that to anything that the platforms do to try and enforce their policies. And just to give a, an example that has nothing to do with disinformation, I mean. Facebook banned mask ads in early March. And there are 100% mask ads still on Facebook. Um, it is impossible for any of these platforms to do 100% enforcement. They are, they are too big. There is too much content. There are too many people dedicated to walking right up to the line and tiptoeing over it. So you have a scenario where like, none of these problems are permanently fixable. 
And so you have to figure out, well, what is sort of the best approximation of a solution that creates the least amount of harm and that hopefully improves things a bit? And I, and I think it's kind of depressing to have to think about it in that sense. But that is that is the reality. I mean, nothing of them is truly fixable and they can have policies, but it's impossible for them to actually fully enforce them. Uh, and so into that realm comes fact checking. And I, I do think one of the underrated values of fact checking um, at least if we specifically talk about the Facebook program, is is the data side of this. So you have all of these fact checkers around the world who will uh, notify Facebook when a particular URL of something on its platform is false or has another designation. And so, yes, that immediately enables Facebook to take that as a signal and suppress the reach and potentially label it and other things. But what it also does for Facebook is it gives them a stream of raw data to tell them what, you know, 100% false or what have you types of content look like. And so they're building the world's biggest corpus of false content, you know, images, memes, articles, that kind of thing. And Facebook is, of course, feeding that into its machine learning systems to try and proactively identify falsehoods, to proactively identify duplicates of things already rated false. And that aspect of them trying to use this human labor which is you know slow and hard to scale in order to actually scale their systems of detection and enforcement is sort of the best hope that Facebook has in this area. And of course, it's still far away from being really effective. There are duplicates of falsehoods that still get out there. There are people evading the system. But that is one of the reasons why, aside from you know other benefits that Facebook is funding all these fact checkers, is it's their best chance of actually building automated systems to do this. And then the other thing I would say just on sort of the fact-checking piece is about that realistic approach of what it can do, you know, fact-checking is not going to change somebody's mind on a deeply held belief. Fact-checking isn't necessarily um, going to take a, you know, a, a person in a position of authority who is consistently spreading falsehoods and make them suddenly rethink that. Um, so people have to be realistic about what this stuff is going to do. But I think there is value in, of course, you know, having this system in place. There's value for helping get better detection systems. There's value in having journalists around the world with these skills. And there's value in deterrence. And of course, you know, there's value in, in helping push back. Because if you don't have fact checks and other things entering the information environment as interventions, then you've basically seeded the ground. And that's a bad situation to be in. So one of the things that sort of we've been exploring is sort of these two strains of whether knowing you know trying to work out whether the fake news hysteria is overblown um and actually self-feeding um in that the more that we sort of talk about fake news the more it becomes more of a problem as we get sort of truth decay as um, some scholars have called it or on the other hand whether things really are truly as bad as they seem um and particularly in in this current context where so much of the disinformation really is especially harmful and pernicious. Do you have a sort of view on how to sort of square that circle between the two views? I, I, part of it for me is as much as we have an interconnected world and information environment, there it's very different from from one country to the next still. Uh, as much as information flows, and one of the crazy things about the coronavirus stuff is how viral messages about, you know, drinking water will help prevent you from getting the virus. Things like that went into so many different languages and spread via text message and WhatsApp and Facebook and so many things. So we have examples of these kind of global, you know, false memes and things like that. 
But the environment from one country to the next can be really different. I mean, you, you look at a country, you look at Taiwan and, you know, the resilience that has been built up in that population and and the fact that, you know, so many people there sort of, you know, feel that um, the shadow of China next to them and and how that has influenced uh, the way that the, the democracy in Taiwan has evolved and the way that they think about resilience, information resilience is incredibly different from a place like the United States, just like, you know, Scandinavian countries are very different from other places. And so I think that's one part of it is there are absolutely global trends. And I do think in some ways things are getting worse. But I also do think that there are examples around the world where this this great awakening of the threats and challenges around this have in some cases caused governments and societies to really bolster and, and build things up. Unfortunately, I mean, so I'm, I'm Canadian. And I, I live in Toronto, but of course, I work for a U.S. news organization and do a lot of reporting about the U.S. But I look at the U.S. and I, what I see around the coronavirus and, you know, the emails I get from people who can't tell whether this, you know, completely unreliable uh, pseudoscience pandemic video is reliable or not, it tells me that, you know, there's some real problems with information resilience in American society. And at the core of that is just how incredibly divided and divisive the politics and society are right now. And and of course, that creates the fertile ground for people to come in and push people further apart and to seed narratives and things like that. And so I, I, you know, I'm feeling very pessimistic right now about the United States when I look at what's going on with the coronavirus stuff, because, you know, the information coming from uh, authorities and from agencies uh, is at times contradictory uh, between each other. There is there is not a unified kind of message. And as much as I think the country pulled together around the early stages of the lockdown, you're seeing that fray and pull apart right now. And part of it is is people really trying to stoke division and people from alternative reality communities like anti-vaxxers seeing this as a massive opportunity to bring millions and millions of people to their point of view. And so I think that there have been times where the rhetoric has been overstated, for example, claiming that, you know, fake news got Trump elected. I don't think that's valid. And, and I think that it's been a really harmful uh, claim that some people have made. At the same time, I think we have to look with some clear eyes at how really difficult and challenging the moment is right now about something that is not in its essence political, but has become politicized. And by virtue of that is potentially causing people's deaths because of this virus. And so, you know, I think it's a really low moment right now, unfortunately. The international variance is such an important point, and I'm really grateful to you, Makey, and it, you know, trust a podcast with two non-Americans on it. Um, it would have been, it would have been a shame not to get that point out um, because it's, it's, it's really important to think about this as a global issue um, and not only through one lens. And that also informs sort of the regulatory responses and things that we need to take as well, because it will play out so differently. But sort of, you were just talking about the next question that I had for you. And unfortunately, I think it's a bit of a pessimistic answer. So my, my question was going to be, you know, you've been studying this for a long time, um, at, well before it was cool. And one of the things that we talk about in this space is like the importance of building societal resilience as really sort of the key solution here, education and, and resilience. Um, and are we getting any better over the course of the time that you've been studying it? Um, but you sort of just sounded quite a pessimistic note then. Do you want to sort of expand on that at all? 
I, I can pull I can pull some positivity into it. Uh, it it's so yes. easy in this. <laughs> yes, I will. I'm I'm usually a very depressing interview. Uh, you know, I don't know why people keep calling me up at this point. But yeah, you should come with warnings. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, I, you know, the overall positive thing is that people are talking about this and not just talking about it, but there are really wonderful, uh, smart, engaged people in so many different elements of society in so many different governments in so many different parts of the world who are working on this. And so are we in a better spot than we were in 2016? I think, I think there are a lot of places where you could point to that and say, absolutely. And the awareness part is a big piece of it. And, uh, and just, you know, people, for example, who are, building deep fake technology and synthetic media technology, I think now it's impossible for them to be working on these things without thinking a bit more about the consequences of what they're building. And can they also provide, you know, data and other things that can help with detection side of it? And that wasn't something that was built into product roadmaps when we go back a few years ago. So there are reasons to be optimistic. And there are uh, a lot of programs right now. You know, I think we have to also have to be patient. There are a lot of programs right now around news literacy, media literacy, research about media effects, all of these different areas that where this is all tied up in. And we have to realize that it's only been a few years now that people are really digging in and doing this research and doing this work. And we can't expect to have easy, fast solutions to what is a whole of society problem and what is uh, affecting different people around the globe in some ways similar and in some ways different. So the optimism that I would sound is, even though I feel like the coronavirus stuff is a really dark time right now, I do believe that in terms of interventions and sort of research and data-based approaches, we're going to have a lot better information in the coming years because so many people are focused on this. And so that makes me a bit optimistic. Um, The engagement from the platforms, the engagements from governments, I think is also a really essential thing where it just didn't exist prior to the end of 2016. So those are all reasons to be optimistic, but you can also look at it and be frustrated that we are years into this global awakening. And right now we're at a really low moment with what's going on with the coronavirus. And you can look in the environment and also see the manipulators and the bad actors are still able to be very successful. And in some cases, you know, to go back to the financially motivated people, making millions and millions and millions of dollars by being good at manipulating this environment. And, you know, those incentives are still there. And that is a very difficult adversary, in addition to all of like the state sponsored and other things like that. We were so close to being able to finish on a positive note. <laughs> I had to go back, didn't I? Oh, it's, it's a terrible <laughs> habit, but... Is there anything else that I should have asked you about or that you'd like to sort of cover before we finish up? The the last thing I would just note for people, since uh, I can be a bit of a downer, is is that you shouldn't feel disempowered by this and you should you shouldn't give up. What every average person can do is to just be more conscious about um, what they're consuming in the media environment to be conscious about their friends and relatives and other people in their life. Can you be a source of quality information? Can you take that extra pause before you share something or pass something along? And if everyone did just that little bit more, we'd all become these, these much better trusted nodes in this whole network that we have. And so I would hate for people to feel disempowered and disillusioned by this because it is an empowering media environment. And if you care about this stuff and you want to do something, your behavior actually matters. Well, that's a much better note to finish up on. Thank you, Craig, very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
You've been listening to The Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.